Please join with me in reading from the beginning of Hebrews chapter 8. Let's read together. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Let's pray. Father, I just come to you today with thanksgiving in my heart for a church that longs to study your holy word, your ancient word. Thank you for passing it down to us in this generation. Father, would you change us by your spirit through your word? We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today we'll be in Hebrews chapter 8. You would like to turn there. And I am a teacher by nature, and that may come through a little bit today. Um, until coming to Calvary three and a half years ago, for most of my career, that's all I had done was teach. And I haven't been teaching much at Calvary yet, so I take it all out on you. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8 starts a new section of the book of Hebrews got two chapters here that are kind of the central section within the structure of this sermon to the Hebrews or this teaching that's given to the Hebrews. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 8 today, as we just read, begins this way. Now the main point of what has been said. So he's referencing back, our author harkens back to the first seven chapters of this book. And to chapter 7 specifically, have you, ever heard, have you ever had that experience where you have a scent or a taste or something that triggers a memory? If you have, I think that can be likened to the goal of our author with chapter 8, verse 1. He asks his readers to remember, to remember that chapter 1, verse 3 noted that when Jesus had made purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He reminds them that they're merciful, they have a merciful and faithful high priest from chapter 2. He reminds them of his words in chapter 3 about considering Jesus. He asks us to remember that the issue for the wilderness generation in chapter 4 was an issue of the heart. He expounds upon the need for a high priest to bring gifts and sacrifices, mentioned in chapter 5. And he finally reminds his readers of their hope in Jesus within the veil. And that he has the right to be there because of his Melchizedek and priesthood, chapter 7. So with chapter 8, verse 1, our author points backwards. And specifically in chapter 7, I think what he points to is that there to remember how our author says that he, is, he was hesitant to dig into the depths of Melchizedek because his readers were dull of hearing or immature, needing milk. Uh, but then he does it, all of chapter 7. It's deep, it's hard, it's hard to understand. But our author now sums up that long chapter on Melchizedek by saying, here's the point. Chapter 8, verse 1, would you read with me? 
Now the main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For, see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I have made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So as our author begins chapter 8, he reminds us of what he's already taught. Reading verse 1 there. Now the main point of what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. And then he reminds us that he has taken his seat. His work of paying for the sin of humanity is complete. He has paid the price in full. And that's why he can take his seat. This is in direct contrast to what you would see in the holy place or in the holy of holies in the temple on earth, or in the tabernacle. There, the work was never complete. I know you're familiar with this idea. The very day the high priest walked out of the Holy of Holies after offering the yearly sacrifice for the sins of the people, that very day, preparations began for the following year. Daily work continued. Being seated was never an option. If you look at the totality of the listed implements, and there were hundreds of implements in the tabernacle or the temple, you will not find one chair. Not one chair. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 describe this perfectly. Verse 11 notes that the priests stand daily. They have to. And then verse 12 tells us that Jesus sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, the right hand, the place of preeminence. Continuing on there in 
the end of verse 1 and into verse 2, sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's the Father. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. There are so many believers, and Kelly and I got to experience many of them when we uh, had a time in Israel. So many believers who have a really strong sense of the importance of the physical temple in Jerusalem. We have to be balanced in that view. We have to be balanced with this reality. The true temple is in heaven. The true temple, the true tabernacle is in heaven. And into eternity, the Father and the Lamb are the temple, as Revelation 22 tells us. Jesus is a minister, the high priest, in the true tabernacle in heaven. This tabernacle the Lord built, this notes its transcendence. It is so far above any tabernacle or temple that was ever built on earth or ever will be. It is high above the temple and the ministry done in it on earth. And then back to the theme of Hebrews, Jesus is better. That temple is better. Our high priest in heaven is better. His ministry is completed in the true tabernacle built by the Lord. Continuing in verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Expounding upon previous chapters, every high priest must have something to offer. So is Christ before the Lord constantly bringing sin offerings, grain offerings, the offerings of the first fruit, guilt offerings? Hard at work to keep this system going? May it never be. His offering was most excellent, therefore. He only needed to offer once. He offered himself. So here we see that not only was he the high priest making the offering, but he was also the offering itself. Verse 4 continues, Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. If he were trying to minister in the temple on earth... As a priest, he would be refused entry. The law governs these things, and the law says that only the tribe of Levi, we've talked about that as we've studied Hebrews, only the tribe of Levi can serve in that role. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. If on earth, he couldn't be a priest at all. But he's a minister in the true tabernacle. Verse 5 Since there are those, the end of verse 4, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. The priestly activity on earth is just a copy or at best a shadow, as described here by the author of the heavenly offering which Jesus has accomplished. Uh, Do you trust a knockoff? Uh, Have you ever purchased a knockoff from a lesser company? Would you stake your future on that choice? One of our recent knockoff purchases were some $5 camping chairs. (laughs) Let me just say, I wouldn't stake my life on them. Actually, I can't sit in them anymore after about 10 sits. Yeah, well, it was poking into my back. It was ripped. When you purchase a knockoff... 
that's what you get. Uh, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go to Dollar Tree. We go every week. <laughs> but you wouldn't trust a knockoff with your life. You wouldn't trust a shadow of the good thing with your life. And that's not what the Lord asks us to do. All things were made according to that pattern in the true tabernacle. Uh, now we're getting into the, the nitty-gritty here a little bit in verses 6 and 7. Uh, we're going to get into some theological ideas about the new covenant. I want you to try and stick with me. I think that this is really important as we study God's word to have an understanding of what is this new covenant. Who does it apply to? Does it apply to Israel? Does it apply to the church? Does it apply? Who does it apply to? So stick with me as we look at uh, maybe the key verses in God's word, some of the key verses in God's word about this new covenant. Verse 6 reads this way, and I'll read uh, 6 and 7. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now let's get the simple things out of the way first. His more excellent ministry is his ministry in heaven as high priest. Much more excellent than the ministry of, in the temple on earth. This better covenant is obviously speaking of the new covenant in some manner. It's better promises will be seen in verses 10 through 12 as we read them in just a minute. But to be specific, um, the better promises that I see here are that they would know and desire to know God's will, that they would enjoy a privileged, unique relationship with God, that they would know God directly, and that they would experience permanent forgiveness of their sins. Those are the better promises spoken of here. Now, the interpretive challenges found in these verses uh, are going to take a little longer. Verse 6 states that Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. The verb used there is in the present tense. Jesus is currently mediating the new covenant in heaven. We will continue with why this is a challenge in a moment, but the second interpretive issue is in verse 7. It states that the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, also known as the law, was in some way faulty. How could something that God implemented be faulty? So we've got two challenges. Let's look at the faulty nature of the first covenant. The first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the synactic covenant. In Exodus 24, and I'm going to shorten this down to just one verse, but if you read the first few verses of Exodus 24, what you're going to find is that Israel agrees to that first covenant. Verse 3, Exodus 24, 3 reads this way. When Moses came and told the people all of the commands of the Lord and all of the ordinances, then all the people responded with a single voice, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. Whoa. If the Lord prepared for you a list of all the things that you must do, and we included hundreds of things, would that be our response? Maybe it would. It was Israel's response in this moment. We will do everything. We will do everything. How is this first covenant faulty? Hebrews 8.8 8 helps us. 
but it doesn't give us the totality. Verse 8 tells us that God found fault with them. Finding fault with them, he says. So God found fault with them, the Israelites. But how? How is it faulty? What's faulty here? Let's say a few reasons. Um, Man, specifically Israel, were involved in the institution of this covenant. There was a bi- this was a bilateral covenant. God said, here's what I'm giving. I'm giving the law. And Israel said, here's what we are giving. We will fully follow it. It was committed um, to by two different parties. God agreed to his end of the deal and man agreed to, agreed to his. Man by nature cannot keep up their end of the bargain. It is faulty. But I would continue. Also, we know that the law itself did not empower anyone to keep the law. First covenant is faulty. The law did not provide a perfect payment for sin. Only short-term covering. In that, the law was faulty. To the degree that the earthly sanctuary with its ministry only imperfectly corresponds to the ministry conducted in the presence of God. That's a mouthful, sorry. It's marked by deficiency. What happened in the temple on earth could not be as good as, could not be perfect as what Christ is doing in heaven on our behalf. So that first covenant, the law, given at Sinai, was faulty. So in these ways, the first covenant was not faultless. Another covenant was needed for the purposes of our Lord. Now back to Jesus and his mediation of the new covenant. Could it really be that he is currently mediating that covenant and that he was when the writer of Hebrews was writing? What are the challenges to this idea? To see the challenges, we need to read verses 8 through 12. This passage is quoted from Jeremiah chapter 31, the first mention of the new covenant in God's holy word. So here we go, reading verses 8 through 12. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. So that's talking about the first covenant. And then verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone as fellow citizen and everyone as brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So we have to see who cuts this covenant. Is it bilateral or is it unilateral? God cuts it. God says, I will make this covenant. He doesn't put responsibility on man to hold up their end of this bargain. It's not based on our response. Who does God cut the covenant with? Look at the end of verse 8 again. And then in verse 10, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then at the beginning of 10, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. Who does God make this covenant with? He makes this covenant with his people, Israel. Has the covenant been completed or fulfilled? 
Well, if you're reading the same passage that I am, we recognize very few of these provisions in the new covenant are happening today with Israel. He says, this will happen with Israel. I'll put my laws in their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. They shall not teach everyone as fellow citizen because they'll already know me. All will know me from the least to the greatest of them. That's not what we saw when we were in Israel with the Jews. Our, the house that we lived in backed up to um, an Orthodox Jewish, uh, Orthodox Jewish community, and we did not see any in that community who would have fit this description. So if this says that all will, I know that all is not true. That's not happening yet with God's people, Israel. They're, they're still teaching one another. And they don't know him. Their sins are not erased since they're not believing. So, is Jesus, is Jesus the present mediator of this new covenant? Was he in 65 to 75 AD when our author was writing? Many believers answer this question in error. Many say the church has replaced Israel. Many say that we are spiritual Israel. So he's mediating all of it with us. Everything that he says here in verses uh, you know, 10 through 12, hey, he's doing it with us, with the church. We've, we've taken on this, and God isn't doing anything with Israel anymore. This answer does not allow for words to actually have meaning. If Israel is us, who is Judah? Because he mentions Judah as well. How were the Gentiles led out of Egypt Tell me about that. And how did we not continue in the first covenant since it was never cut with us? We know it was cut with Israel. You would find these issues throughout God's word if you replace Israel with the church. So how is Jesus mediating this new covenant now? He has to be because the text tells us he is. There are a few perspectives on this topic. I'm just going to describe three in real short fashion for two of them. There is a multiple new covenant view, which says that God made a new covenant with Israel that he talks about in Jeremiah. And then in the New Testament, there's a different one that he makes with the church. Uh, I don't see that one as feasible uh, with God's word. But those who take that view, that's okay. Uh, I think they're pursuing Jesus as they study God's word. The second view is the single covenant, multiple participants view. And this is the belief that the church participates during the present age in some aspects of Israel's new covenant. Though the covenant will be fulfilled literally with Israel in the future. Uh, And that's actually going to be the view that I take as we uh, continue here. The third view is the single covenant Israel only view. That would say that this new covenant was only for Israel. And this is not saying that we take on any of the benefits from the new covenant. The new covenant will take place with Israel in the future. And they will receive all those benefits. And it's not related in any way to the church, not even for blessing or forgiveness or anything else that we see there. Um, actually, Dr. Christopher Cohn, who used to be the president at Calvary, some of you have heard him speak here at Open Door. That's the view that he takes. <laughs> the way he describes it, I think it's a very valid view. Uh, it may be the correct view. I'm not sure. But I take the second view, and we'll talk about why. Options two and three seem to have very strong biblical evidence. Uh, currently, I hold to number two, and the covenant was not made with uh, 
The new covenant was made with Israel only. It was made with Israel only. The new covenant will be fulfilled completely with Israel. God is faithful. He perfectly fulfills every promise he makes with the people who he makes the promise. If this were not so, we would have no reason to believe that he will save us to the uttermost. Because he has made promises to us in relationship to salvation. If he was actually going to fulfill that with someone other than us, we would have no reason to believe him. So when he makes a promise to Israel, we have to believe he will uh, stick to his promise. He will follow through with everything he has promised. In his perfect plan, he had to send his son to die on the cross and to be raised on the third day. This event took place in time and space. The new covenant blessings were provided for 2,000 years ago, even though the new covenant won't be fulfilled until the Messianic kingdom. Everything that is needed for it has been fulfilled 2,000 years ago in Christ, provided for in Christ 2,000 years ago at the cross. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant in the upper room. Just before his death, in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, he says, And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant will be fulfilled at another time in history. It will be finished at another time in history. This has not happened with Israel yet. They are yet to embrace Christ and are therefore yet to receive the blessings of the new covenant. That being said, Jesus' death and resurrection have happened. The earth-shattering effects of his payment for the sin of mankind have begun. Some of those effects are offered specifically to believers, whether of Jewish heritage or Gentile heritage. Many of these effects are seen in the church, very similar benefits to what will be seen by Israel when they return to their Messiah. Those same effects are seen by believers today who accept the Messiah's free gift of salvation. So, who mediates the new covenant with Israel? Jesus, the high priest. Who mediates salvation for believers and some of the blessing that we get that's very similar to the new covenant and the benefits that we enjoy? Uh, Jesus mediates all of those benefits. Has the new covenant been fulfilled, completely installed? No. The provisions are not yet met. They haven't come to pass yet. We can see that with the Jewish people. For now, Paul says that the church is in the business of making Israel jealous. We are getting some of the blessing from this new covenant, and we are making Israel jealous uh, until they return to their Messiah. Soon they will know him, and they will be near him, and they will have his word written on their heart. So for us today in the church, what blessings do we experience that would at the very least remind us of the similar benefits that Israel will see yet future? Some say that we only experience the forgiveness that was mentioned there in verse 12. I believe that that's true, but that we will also likely, we also likely benefit from the other three mentioned promises uh, that we would know and desire to know God's will. I think that's a reality the moment we believe that we want. We change. God changes us to have different desires. We desire after him. 
that we can enjoy a privileged, unique relationship with God? Well, the church is his bride. We have a privileged, unique relationship with God, different from Israel's, but privileged and unique. That we can know God directly? 100% the veil is torn. And that we can experience permanent forgiveness of our sins. And that they are forgotten. I think we get all of these benefits in some measure. And before we finish, uh, forgiveness is so important. And it's such an issue in our day and age that um, there's a story that's told uh, that I've heard in a couple of different places. And I'm not pulling my theology from this story. It's a story. There's a story told of a certain Catholic woman who was having visions of Jesus. The reports reached the archbishop. He decided to check her out. There's always a fine line, he thought, between the authentic mystic and the lunatic fringe. Is it true, ma'am, that you have had visions of Jesus? Asked the archbishop. Yes, the woman replied simply. Well, the next time you have a vision, I want you to ask Jesus to tell you the sins that I confessed in my last confession. The woman was stunned. Did I hear you right, Bishop? You actually want me to ask Jesus to tell you the sins of your past? Exactly. Please call me if anything happens. Ten days later, the woman notified her spiritual leader of a recent, of a recent apparition. Please come, she said. Within the hour, the archbishop arrived. He trusted eye-to-eye contact. You just told me on the telephone that you actually had a vision of Jesus. Did you do what I asked? Yes, Bishop. I asked Jesus to tell me the sins you confessed in your last confession. The bishop leaned forward with anticipation, his eyes narrowed. What did Jesus say? She took his hand and gazed deep into his eyes. Bishop, she said. These are his exact words. I can't remember. Finally, in verse 13. When Jesus said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The Mosaic covenant has been made obsolete by the death of Christ. It and all of its practices were ready to disappear. And that is exactly what happened to them. I don't know if our author was predicting the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but he very well could, could have been if he was writing before 70 AD. Those things would completely disappear from the earth. There is no high priest in Israel. There hasn't been for nearly 2,000 years. Appropriate sacrifices have not been made for nearly 2,000 years. For believing Jews in the first century, the Mosaic Covenant is not the answer. Jesus is. That's the story of our author of Hebrews. He wants these Hebrews to not go back. Don't turn back to the previous covenant. Come to Jesus. In summary, we have a high priest who is ministering on our behalf. In heaven, in the Holy of Holies, he offered himself up for you and me. The Mosaic Covenant was faulty. It could not save to the uttermost. Jesus is currently mediating the New Covenant toward its future completion with Israel. We benefit daily from the Lord's progressive fulfillment of that New Covenant. One of those benefits is that the Lord truly forgives 
He does not hold past sins over us. They were paid for at the cross. You don't have to hold them over yourself in his stead. If you have gazed upon the Lord Jesus and believed, you are forgiven. In the words of the psalmist, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Uh, Really quickly, a hymn that was on my heart this week as I studied. um, My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. That would be in the present tense. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. You need not hold your sin over yourself because your great high priest has paid for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word, how trustworthy you are. God, would you help us understand uh, Hebrews as we continue studying through it? Uh, Anything that I said that isn't correct, Lord, would you teach us uh, by your word, by other passages? Would you help us to be good Bereans and study to understand, to know you more, to draw nearer to you. Thank you for forgiveness freely granted at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.